for what I, what I was going to hear there, you know. Uh, we're continuing this sermon series, Promises Fulfilled. The promise fulfilled. Two weeks ago, we looked at uh, 1 Peter, where Peter says, you are a holy priesthood. As being a part of the body of Christ, you now are a ho- holy priesthood. You're part of that set-apart people that God called back when he called Abraham to follow him. You now, those of you who have given your life to Christ, are included in that set-apart people. Last week we looked at the author of the Hebrews making this claim that Jesus, Jesus had to be human, 100% human, 100% divine. Figure that one out. People have wrestled with that. for like, It can't be 200%, Pastor Chad. It is. It's the way it is. It's who Jesus is. That's the mystery of who Jesus is. But he had to be human. He had to suffer so that he could be in solidarity with us, so that his sacrifice would be good for you and for me and in building a right relationship with God, restoring that relationship. This morning we're looking at Romans 10. Romans chapter 10 where Paul, Paul now pulls back, what I, what I love about these passages, if you can't tell kind of how I've chosen some of these passages, uh, the staff was saying like, these are kind of weird, why have you chosen these? Because I like them. No, um, I've chosen, I love when the New Testament authors grab Old Testament material and say this is Jesus This person way back when in the Old Testament was talking about Jesus. And so today we're going to see Paul quoting Moses, Paul quoting Joel, saying what those guys were writing about and talking about way back when all pointed to Jesus, all pointed to Jesus. But I want to unpack Paul a little bit. Paul, just in case you're going, okay, I kind of know a little bit about Paul, but what's his context? Who was he writing to? What was his faith journey about? I think the easiest place to see Paul's faith journey is in Philippians 3, in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul describes his own kind of pedigree, his own faith, uh, what would you call it, like a resume, his own resume, in Philippians 3. This is what he says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And when Paul uses things like confidence in the flesh, he's talking about kind of what you can achieve with your physical body. This physical body we have. Confidence in the things I can do on my own with my physical body. He says, if anybody thinks they have reasons for confidence in what they have done on their own merit, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, and then he breaks it down. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He can trace it back. He's saying, I can trace it back. I know what tribe I even came from. Of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to following the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, passion, I persecuted the church. As for a righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Paul is saying here that as it comes to his own merit, his own ability to be in a right relationship with God, his own efforts to follow God, he has done it perfectly. He's figured it out. He's a Pharisee. He's from the right tribe. He's from the right people. He's had a passion, such a, a fervor for following God that if you know Paul's story, Paul was there holding the cloaks As Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death, Paul was standing there holding the cloaks going, yep, this is the right thing to do. 
These people are twisting our faith. These people who say they love Jesus and that Jesus is the Messiah are wrong and they need to be stopped. That's Paul's faith journey. That's where Paul was at. He was so passionate, so passionate that he wanted, he was given orders to go and round up these Jewish Christ followers because they were wrong and they needed to be corrected. Some of them even needed to be killed. But Paul has a conversion to Christ. He changes his mind on Jesus. He has that, uh, that, that, that the, uh, the, he's on the road and he's blinded and he, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, why are you persecuting me? And he's converted. He starts to believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And here's what he says next. You can trace his faith journey in this little chapter, Philippians 3. He says, but whatever were gains to me, all those things, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he just goes even further. He says, all those things, I consider them garbage. All of that stuff that he could hang his hat on and say, I'm the right guy from the right tribe. I've been doing the right thing. I've been following all the rules. I am the quintessential Jewish man. I am the one that you should look at and say, this is what it means to follow God. He says, all of that, now that I know Jesus, all that is garbage. Whoa. This is somebody who has been, in all senses of the word, converted. Converted. We talked about what real conversion is a, a while back. This metanoia is the, is the Greek word. It's a complete transformation of person. Complete transformation. This is what happens when, when, when somebody is completely transformed. They start to say all that other stuff, garbage. Now I'm following Jesus. He says all of that is garbage that I may gain Christ, be found in him. And then he starts adding these other words. We're going to kind of pick this up today. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not having a righteousness that I earn, that I can track. Am I following the law closely enough, yes or no? And you can maybe tabulate. You could keep your own scorecard and saying, yeah, I'm better than him, better than her. I'm it's that comparative faith trap that we get into when we have this scorecard and we can say, I'm doing better than others, therefore I must be closer to God. And Paul was caught up in that, this righteousness that comes from our own merits, our own flesh, our own ability to follow God. And he's saying, in Christ, in Christ something different has happened. And that's where we're going to pick up our text in Romans 10, in Romans 10. I want to give a, a quick uh, addendum before we get into our text and just work through our text and follow Paul's argument, Paul's argument that Christ fulfills that which the law could not fulfill. That's kind of the argument today. Jesus fulfills the very thing the law was trying to fulfill, but just couldn't quite get there. That's his argument today. Paul's uh, letter to the Romans is a pretty complicated letter. Anybody who's studied the Bible, this is a big theological masterpiece and it's a letter to an early church i can't even imagine what those early christians when they received this letter from paul these early gentiles not even jewish people gentile people trying to understand what paul was saying i mean we we're like two thousand years later looking through this going what was he what was he trying to get across this is big deep amazing things 
Can't even imagine what the earliest followers were going through. But then this one section in Romans, chapter 9 through chapter 11, Paul starts pouring his heart out about the Jewish people, his people, his tribe. He starts pouring his heart out. He starts with, uh, here, here at the beginning of chapter 9, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. He's going to start pouring his heart out about his people. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he says this, something that I, I don't know that, I don't know, maybe you could say something like this about people you know. He says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. This is how passionate Paul is about wanting to see people connected to Jesus, about seeing people who are not connected to Jesus, who need to be connected to Jesus, people who should have got it, should have understood. They knew the story. They knew the story of God. They knew it, and they should have seen it. And he's knowing that he didn't see it right away. He didn't see that Jesus was the chosen one right away. But now that he sees it, he wants everyone to know. And he's even willing to say, did you, hear, did you catch that? He's even willing to say, I would forfeit my eternity if all of them would come to know Jesus. Have you ever felt that passionate about somebody else wanting to know Jesus? That is passion right there. Maybe you have, maybe you know family members, you have close friends, you have people who say, gosh, I thought we raised them in the church. I thought we taught them the right things. They were baptized, they were confirmed, they even did confirmation. That's supposed to automatically save everyone. At least the way I teach it. I mean, that's, no. But I've seen this happen where you go, gosh, we poured our hearts out into these kids, into these people and they just, it never seemed to stick. And you have that anguish in your heart. I, I hope to a certain extent you felt that, oh, this pain. Like Paul experiences here, that Paul expresses that, oh, I've been praying and I'm hoping that somehow they would finally get it. That they would see who Jesus is. That's the anguish about which Paul is writing here in this section that we're exploring. Well, let's get into Paul's argument in chapter 10. Got to point it back that way. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. So Paul begins. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, there's an interesting phrase there that goes back to Paul's idea of a righteousness of his own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And then he says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This is similar language to what we've already covered. Paul's anguish, his, his passion his hope, his desire that his people would finally say, we get it, we can't do it on our own. We've been trying to follow the law, we've been trying to follow the rules, we can't do it on our own. We want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, but they don't. And so Paul has this anguish and he's saying, if they could only see that Jesus, he doesn't end the law. He doesn't end obedience. Don't hear that. 
Or it doesn't matter what you do now. Paul addresses that elsewhere in Romans. Should we just keep on sinning so we can get more grace? That seems like a pretty sweet deal. The more I sin, the more grace I get. Yay! Paul's like, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. But here he's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. See, the law was established to try to, to build a bridge to God, to build that bridge. It kind of goes back to what we talked about. Uh, we're actually going to get into this argument from Moses even. If you can remember a couple weeks back when we were talking about 1 Peter, talking about this elevator theology. Moses had to go up and then he brings stuff down because the people can't really approach God. So we need people in these priestly roles who can go and approach God and come back down, go and approach God and come back down. And the law is established so people can maybe, maybe be holy enough, follow the rules enough to maybe approach God, but it never really works. And Paul says Christ is the culmination, the, the telos, the completion of the law, the completion of the law. So that now we can be in a right, a right relationship with God. Each and every one of us who claim Christ can be in a right relationship with God. And Paul, Paul's on to something here. This argument about trying to establish a righteousness of our own. This always rears its head. This, it's always tempting. Each of us at some point in our, in our faith journey have been or will be tempted to imagine that the best way to ensure my own salvation is for me to work at it really, really hard. For me to follow all the rules to a T, that is the way to ensure. You, and it, what it starts to do is you start to creep in like, can I really trust Jesus? And if I, if maybe I'm unsure, and it, it creeps in. It creeps in. Maybe it hasn't been there for you. It crept into me when I was a, a seventh grader. Man, I was a zealous seventh grader for Jesus. I probably annoyed a lot of people as a seventh grader for Jesus. And that's okay. That's where I was in my faith journey. But it was this attempt to say, oh, those people are bad people, and I'm better than them. That's the scary part. Martin Luther, remember that name, Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, the, the original Martin Luther. Remember that guy in the 1500s? If you know his story, his story was he was working so hard to be right with Christ. He was just working and working and working at it. He joined the monastery. He was anxious about his faith. He never felt like he and Jesus were jiving and it was all good. He was working really hard. He became a monk and he said this, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say, I love this part, that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But then he gets really, says, all my brothers in the monastery knew me, will, knew me well, to, uh, bear, to, who knew me will bear me out, will testify. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. It's this idea, but by the way, I just love the word monkery. I mean, I wish we could figure out how to use that in our vocabulary these days. I'm trying to get saved by my monkery. What are you talking about? Anyway, but this is the human story. We take a good thing, we turn it into a formula, and then we go, oh, but I, maybe I just need to work harder. And when we do this with our spiritual life, to a certain degree, we can, maybe those of you who have been on this road, you can resonate with Luther that when you fail, Paul talks about this too. Oh, I'm trying, and I'm trying. And in Romans 7, he says, I do that which I don't want to do. Why do I still do this? I thought that I was working hard at it. We find ourselves in a place where 
like killing ourselves spiritually, killing ourselves emotionally, and maybe even to a certain degree, it's wearing us out physically, trying and trying and feeling like we can't measure up, like we're never going to do enough. We can't ever do enough. Oh. And I've seen kids, I've seen other people that I love because they, they've been taught that that's what faith is. Walk away and go, well, I can't ever measure up. What's the point? I've already failed, so why should I keep coming back? I saw this a lot, um, just to be very frank. I had, a, I had some students who, um, you know, the big no-no in evangelical circles, and it's a serious thing, and it causes a lot of emotional, uh, emotional pain. I saw a lot of students who, who decided to have sex before marriage, and, and it really wrecked them. But unfortunately, what they heard from the church was, now that you've done that, you're tainted. Now that you've done that, I don't know that you really should come here anymore. And so we'd, we'd reach out to them, and I'd tell my youth leaders, gosh, let them know we still love them. Let them know that this is the very place they should be. Let them know that this is the place where we want to bring healing to those broken relationships, and we believe Jesus can heal them of that. And a lot of them would say, like, you know, I've already done this thing. I've messed up big time. I've tr now I'm trying to follow the rules, but it, fe it felt like now I'm just done. This, this painful experience of, of people, and you could say whatever the sin might be, whatever the thing might be, that there is pain involved. And, and a lot of times if it comes down to our relationship is just work harder, be better, follow the rules more, we get to a place where we just go, when is enough enough? Can I ever do it on my own? Can I ever achieve enough, do enough on my own? And Paul says no. I've been there. I had a righteousness that was my own. I've been part of a people who had a righteousness that was built on our own ability to follow rules. And now Jesus has come. He's come and he's shown us a better way. And this, friends, is just the introduction. We're just at the introduction of chapter 10. Paul continues his argument. Now he's going to start to quote Moses. He says, Moses writes about a righteousness that comes from the law. This is from Leviticus. So here's Moses quoting Leviticus. The person who does these things will live by them. Paul says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, and I think this part is very fascinating. This is Paul quoting Moses. The righteousness by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or who will descend into the deep to bring Christ up. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, I love this because Moses is writing at a time where this, uh, this is from Deuteronomy 30. It's kind of at the end of the Moses journey. And he's saying to the people, remember, even though you have the law, and remember, God is near. He's near to you. He's accessible to you. Moses kept trying to get this to the people. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Moses was saying, oh, that everyone had God's spirit. It would be so much easier to lead these people if everyone had God's spirit. And Paul is saying, that day has come. 
God is near. You don't need an elaborate search party to go out and go, let's go to the highest mountain. Maybe that's where we'll find God. No, he's here. In Christ, God has come near. He's come nearer than ever before. And now you have the promises of the Holy Spirit being within us. It's interesting, this language here. We, we use kind of other language, but in the ancient days, the heart, the heart was, was considered the, the center of your values. That's where everything, those deeply held convictions were in the heart. Now we think so much about our head. Science now is everything has shown is like most of your thinking is, is, well, all of your thinking is in your head. But they talked about your heart. And so you have Jesus saying that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth will speak. It's not what, what goes in, it's what comes out, because what's inside a person is what they really believe, where their real convictions are, their real convictions are. And so he's saying, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, because if that's in there, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. And Paul is saying now, this is kind of the, the wrapping up this little section here of Romans 10. Paul is saying that that day Moses was hoping for that the people would grasp that the righteousness by the law comes from doing these things and living, but there's a righteousness that's by faith that is God is here. You don't have to ascend to the mountain. You don't have to go down to the deep. He's here. He's on your lips. He's in your heart. He's here. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul, I don't know, something about this makes me think, is it this easy? There's something, maybe it's growing up in the church. Maybe it's the, the idea of cheap grace. I don't want that grace to be too cheap, you know. That when I hear Paul write, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's something that makes me go, is it really that easy, Paul? Is that it? This is a big question. What does it mean to be saved? And Paul lays it out here. So it made me dig a little bit deeper into this little thing. I heard one commentator say, Jesus is Lord is the earliest Christian confession. And so I thought, like, I need to unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? I think it's a little bit confusing for us because we don't have lords and ladies and this whole thing of, you know, uh, the idea of somebody at the highest level that we have to call Lord. We don't have that. We don't even have a king. We don't have any of these things in our country, so how do you wrap your mind around this? So you have to go back and try to understand what it meant for them, why this was a big deal, because in their time, Caesar was Lord. Caesar is Lord. There's actually the idea that Caesar is a god. And, and when he says jump, you say, how high? When the Roman soldier says, carry my pack, you go, okay, I'm going to carry your pack, because Caesar is Lord. And if you mess with Caesar, you get killed. So don't mess with Caesar because Caesar is Lord. And now you have this renegade group of people walking around like, yeah, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see where that might get them into some trouble? Hey, you better, you better know Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. Uh, excuse me? Tell that to a Roman soldier. See what happens. But the earliest Christians were crazy because they were happy to say, no, we don't care what you're going to do to us. Jesus is Lord. People throughout the centuries who have followed Jesus have made this confession of faith and have said, Jesus is in charge of my life. You can do whatever you want. You can, you can 
try to get me to do whatever you want, but Jesus is Lord of my life. He's in charge of me. That's where my allegiance is. And so this statement, this early statement, Jesus is Lord, see, to us, at least as a kid who grew up in the church, I always thought about that, uh, just say Jesus is Lord with your mouth. So that's like the magic formula now. Got to get together, got to get a kid to say, like, prayer, prayer, that you say, Jesus is Lord, and now you're good to go. Without unpacking, what are you really saying? Do you know what you're saying when you say Jesus is Lord? Not the Caesars, not the kings, not the presidents, not the dictators, not the authorities. Jesus is in charge of me, not my friends, not even my parents. Sometimes parents, I, I've dealt with kids whose parents are not believers, and they tell their, they don't care what their kids do. So there's, a, there's an emphatic statement here of saying that my allegiance is emphatically with Jesus in his way, in his way. See, the truth is that there's all these competing, maybe we don't understand this statement of Jesus as Lord, but the truth is there are competing allegiances all around us. There are things competing for our attention, things competing for our money, things competing for our time, things competing for our values, our thoughts. There's all these allegiances out there saying, look over here, I can save you. That's what every TV ad is, if you think about it. Every advertisement is, look over here, I can save you. I can offer you a better life just by this, just do this. You can be better, you can be happier, you can be healthier if you just had this. That's what all that's about. It's about allegiances. It's, it's all of these, oh, maybe if I go over here. And then, I mean, you've got the political realm. Politicians of every stripe, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, they're competing for our allegiances. They're competing for our allegiances. Oh, maybe we can be swayed a little this way, a little this way, and they can really grab us. And then we find ourselves maybe saying, oh, this is what I believe. Well, why do you believe that? Do you believe that because of Jesus? Well, I grew up in America, and I grew up in Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska's a total red state, a total, like, I, I mean, just the, it was totally co-opted in the way of thinking. And then I moved to Chicago, and it's like this incredibly liberal area. It's like everybody, it's just... So you have to stop and say, am I making decisions based on Jesus is Lord? It's, it's tough. It's tough. And now we, we have these struggles where all across the world, politicians are, are, are all across the world. There's this movement of it's time to put France first. It's time to put England first. It's time to put Russia first, China first, North Korea first, America first. And it's easy to get caught up in it. Be like, yeah, well, I live here. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds pretty cool. And, and that, I think, is the job of politicians. But when we Christians get caught up in that, it seems actually kind of silly. I mean, can you, can you imagine in Jesus' day, Jesus and his tribe going like, man, we got to go Rome first. Come on. Paul going out to these places and being like, hey, Jesus is really cool. But listen. We also need to be aware that we need to prop up the Roman government so that we can take over other countries. What? Part of the Jesus movement? What? And so we have to be so careful when it comes to our allegiances. And I just say all this not to, to take a huge tangent bunny trail, but say, what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? Paul is saying this is what is unveiled to us, that Jesus is near. We can have our allegiance to him and follow his way with all we've got.
with all we've got. Two more things, and we're going to wrap up this morning. Paul, Paul go, continues. He says, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then he really gets after it. Again, if he's hoping to connect it all with a Jewish audience, he just, he just gets after him. He's saying that God is doing something new here. Something he talked about a long time ago, but it's happening now, friends. He said, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting the prophet Joel there at the end, saying that what Joel was saying, that there would be a day when everyone would call on the name of the Lord and everyone who does that will be saved, that's happening now. But Paul, if you notice the words he uses here, he uses anyone who believes in him. There's no difference anymore between Jew and Gentile. The Lord is Lord of all and blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, this was a promise in the Old Testament that the, the, the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. That, that everyone would have a chance to stream to Jerusalem and find God. And they never really fulfilled that task. And so now Paul is saying the day has come and through what Christ has done and what God has done through Christ has made it so everyone can be saved. The dividing walls are gone. It's over. Paul goes even further into this in Galatians 3. We're going to look at this in a couple of weeks. But in Galatians 3, Paul says that everyone baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Again, he's reaching out and saying any, anybody who thought because of gender, because of economics, because of social status, because of ethnicity, if you thought you were in a more special position, well, we're just better. Now, if you find yourself in Christ, you're all equal. You're on the same playing field. You're all working together. You're all in Christ together. For anyone who says Jesus is Lord is on the same team, regardless of, of race, ethnicity, gender, Social status. You're on the same team if you say Jesus is Lord. That's why, the, that's why I was arguing a little bit earlier about this idea of making a country first or a team first or a town first or a state first. It's kind of silly when you think about it for Christ followers. Because if we're all, no, we're on the Jesus is Lord team, all the other stuff is like, well, it's like secondary, tertiary. Not my primary identity, not my primary allegiance, not my, my primary of, way of seeing the world and being in the world. I actually heard somebody, uh, it was at the Chick conference, I don't know if we have any students in here today who went to Chick last time, huge conference that our denomination puts on every three years. And uh, they had a, a rapper by the name of Lecrae, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, phenomenal Christian hip-hop artist, uh, who came and spoke and performed. And he talked about, he said something that, that really has stuck with me. It was really profound on all the students as well. See, as a kid, I had always gone, especially in the sports context, because I was a just crazy athlete and then coached, found myself saying the same thing in coaching. Coaches would say a lot, listen, it's like your spirituality first, faith first, it's your family second, then you got to take care of your schoolwork, and then last comes sports, because if you don't take care of these three, you're not going to be able to play sports. Okay? And I always thought, like, that's, yeah, yeah yes. That's right. But this guy, Lecrae, he was talking, he said, you know, that's actually, for a Christ follower, not the truth. 
Because the truth is, it's not a list of priorities. And on any given day, you can say, like, well, Jesus, I'm going to set you here and I'm going to go do these things. It's that you have family, you have relationships, you have school, you have your extracurricular activities, you have all these things, and Jesus actually encapsulates all of them. He's in the midst of all of them. So, so otherwise, this other way kind of divides it out. Well, as long as I attend church enough, so we get back into the righteousness of our own. As long as I attend church enough and do religious things enough, I can check that box that I took care of that. So now I can spend some time on schoolwork. That was at least the way that I understood it as a kid. Like, okay, I go to church on Sundays and youth group occasionally on a Wednesday. Therefore, I've checked the faith box. Now I'm good to spend the rest of my time doing something else. Instead of, no, Jesus is in all. The allegiance, the claim Jesus is Lord means he's in it all. He's in it all. And then Paul gets to a final point, final point this morning. He says, how then can they call on the one who they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The final call, I mean, if, you, if, if you're tracking along this morning and going, okay, righteousness not of my own, but Christ has completed the law. He's made it so I can come to God. He's, he's, he's made it so God has come near to us. He's fulfilled those things from the Old Testament promises, the promises that all people would have an opportunity to be saved. To be saved is a confession of Jesus as Lord, which means he's in charge of me. He's in charge of my life. I'm giving everything I got to him. The final thing is, if you think that's a pretty sweet deal, go tell someone. Paul's like, if you think that's pretty cool, if you like that for yourself, if you like this way of life, if you like the idea that God has come near and he has saved us, not by what we can do, but because he loved us so much and he wanted to make a way. If you like that idea, why don't you go tell somebody about it? Why don't you go tell somebody about it? So the final charge for us is to take these beautiful feet of yours. Even if you got ugly feet, take those too. But whatever kind of feet God has gifted you with, be they ugly, beautiful, whatever, anywhere in between. And I got to tell you, as somebody who has pretty ugly feet, I'm going to take my feet too. And go tell someone. Go tell someone about what God has done. Maybe think about those people, as I was talking earlier, are there people that it just pains you, it tears you up inside that they don't know Jesus? Maybe it's time to follow up with them again. Maybe it's time to just say, like, man, I've been praying for you a lot. Even if it's family members, a grandson, a granddaughter, a son, a daughter, an estranged member of the family, reach out. Man, I've been praying, I've just been thinking about you. Not in a preachy way, but just in a way that says, I love you. I'm longing for you with that anguish that Paul has. I'm longing for you to taste what I've tasted, to see what I've seen, to be able to give your life fully to Jesus. Because all this other stuff, all this other righteousness of your own, chasing things that will make you happy on your own, chase, it's just not, for those who have tried it, you know that it's just not fulfilling. It's not the answer. Let's try another way and then show it to them. Show it to them. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks, the ultimate thanks, that we can even talk about this because you sent your son. 
That's why we can talk about this, God, is because you didn't leave us hanging. You didn't leave us alone. You didn't stand at a distance. You didn't turn your back to us. You sent your son. God, you sent your son to show us a better way of living, the way of living that you desire for us, your people, your sons and daughters. You sent your son to die on the cross. Lord, fully human, die on the cross, suffer like us, that we might be in right relationship with you. And then, God, you did the ultimate. You raised him from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating the devil. You did it all. So, God, on this Sunday, we, we call out, Jesus is Lord. God, I would pray that if there's someone in the room who has never said that, never confessed that, that maybe this is the day they begin saying in their heart, Jesus is Lord. And that that wouldn't just stay in their heart, but it would spring out from their lips that their friends, co-workers, neighbors would know it, that for them, they are claiming you. You are Lord. You are in charge. God, help us all, even those of us who have confessed that for a long, long time, to live that. To live that, to speak that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was told to expect that at some point because uh, they're learning about Jericho. So I believe they're actually going to be, I, hopefully the place doesn't crumble. Um, they're going to be marching and, yeah, let's hope the walls don't come down. Oofta, there you go. This morning we have the opportunity to continue in worship by coming to the Lord's table. The Gospels tell us that on the first day of the week, the day our Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his disciples and was made known to them in the breaking of bread. It's true for us as well. Christ is made known to us as we break this bread and drink this cup together. The invitation is as follows. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you're righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on the grace of God, because, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come, not to express an opinion, but to seek, to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. I am having trouble talking right now. You're invited to this table. All who believe in Jesus, who have said Jesus is Lord, you are invited to this table. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This morning we'll be coming forward for communion. There'll be two stations here, uh, a third station in the back. 
Uh, there'll be a gluten-free station over here on this side of the, of the worship center. And I also will be uh, coming around to anyone who is not able to come forward. Uh, I definitely don't want to miss anyone, so if you could just help me draw attention to, uh, to those um, who need me to come to them. I don't want to miss anyone, so make sure uh, just kind of point them out as, I, as I'll be walking around. I'd like to invite the servers to come forward at this time.